Welcome to Disciple Dojo, and we have an interesting viewer question that came this week. It's a little different than some of the ones that we've had before. A viewer wrote in and said, I would really enjoy a video or a series about Methodists and what they believe. I grew up in Baptist churches, in particular free will and general Baptist churches, so I don't know a great deal about what they believe. I would also really like to know your opinion on the schism that is happening in the United Methodist Church and the Breakaway Global Methodist Church. As an outsider of the denomination, it's been fairly difficult to follow. I know it's not entirely Bible-related, but learning about other church traditions is definitely very important for understanding my fellow Christians and being more unified, even when not in direct fellowship. What a great question. I have had a number of people ask because some people know that I have been a lifelong United Methodist and up until very recently was United Methodist. Rather than me trying to answer this question, I wanted to bring in somebody to help me do it. So I reached out to a friend of mine, Dr. Matt O'Reilly, who was formerly a United Methodist pastor and is now a global Methodist pastor. And we sat down and just had a chat about some things that are distinctly Methodist. We talked about some minute points of Methodist theology that may interest those of you that watch that are into issues about systematic theology and Methodism, John Wesley versus, say, Martin Luther or John Calvin. And it was cool to just sit around and kind of nerd out on some Methodist stuff because a huge chunk of Christians throughout the world today in different denominational traditions can in some way trace their spiritual ancestry back to the Wesleyan revivals. Now, stay tuned. After the discussion, I'm going to share a couple of resources for people that are interested in knowing more about Methodism, Wesleyan and theology, things like that. And in the meantime, if you haven't already, go ahead and click the subscribe button and click the little notifications icon as well. We are about to hit 10,000 subscribers, which is just unbelievable. I'm so thankful for all of you and the support that this channel has gotten. And as a celebration of that, we're going to be giving away the Anchor Bible Dictionary set as soon as we hit 10,000. The only way that you'll know when we do that and how to enter that contest, which will be completely free, is by being a subscriber and having the notifications turned on so you know when we put that out there. All right, let's talk about Methodism. I brought in an expert. I brought in a ringer to answer some of these questions that I have more trouble with. So we are here with my good friend, Dr. Matt O'Reilly. And Matt, let me let you tell Dojo viewers, uh, who are you? And why would I call on you to answer this question? Ah, I guess we'll have to figure that one out, though. Won't we? <laughs> yeah. No, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun to be here. Um, Disciple Dojo is the place to be, right? So. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. <laughs> so who yeah. are you? What do you do? What are your what I, are your credentials? I am uh, a global Methodist pastor. Um, I was in the United Methodist Church for many years. I was ordained in the United Methodist Church in May. I transferred my credential to the global Methodist Church and now pastoring Christ Church in Birmingham, Alabama, which is a global Methodist congregation. My academic background, uh, PhD is in New Testament studies from the University of Gloucestershire, worked on Paul's understanding of future bodily resurrection, mm -hmm. and then uh, master's work at Asbury Seminary, undergrad, Auburn University. So lived in the Wesleyan world for a long time, have tried to contribute in healthy, what I hope are healthy and constructive ways. And now we're working on 
getting the Global Methodist Church aimed in the right direction and on a strong foundation. Mm. It's it's great that we were able, we connected years ago. I believe you came and spoke at the Western North Carolina Conference annual conference, and it was the evangelical. It was the evangelical that uh, chapter. The right, gathering. right. The yeah. evangelical, the those of us in the conference who were evangelical uh, right. came and spoke. Uh, it was a wonderful presentation, and we connected then. We had some mutual friends. Uh, a viewer had asked a question, and I've had a number of viewers ask about this, and they've said, because I've mentioned before, Disciple Dojo viewers know I'm United Methodist, or was at least, lifelong United Methodist. My theology is generally Wesleyan, I say, because there are a few issues where I probably part ways, but mostly minor. Uh, so if I had to land somewhere, it would be in that general Wesleyan Anglican kind of world. But when it comes to Methodism and the United Methodist Church and Global Methodist Church, there's a lot of things, especially news articles and people that kind of keep up with this little corner of Christendom. They are asking what's going on. Why is United Methodist splitting? And rather than me, I, I'm, I've never been ordained. For viewers that may wonder, I my seminary education, I did pastoral ministry in a local church setting, but never as an ordained, appointed, in the system uh, staff member. I was always mm -hmm. sort of an outside hire. But I was baptized. My dad's a United Methodist pastor. I was baptized. I think I was, I don't know, five or six years old. Um, have just lifelong United Methodist. So I can speak from a lay perspective. But I wanted to bring in somebody that could talk about, from a clergy perspective, What's going on in the church, in Methodist, the Methodist church with the split that people are talking about? But more than that, some people have asked, what is Methodism anyway? Like, what, where did it come from? What is it? And I wanted to have Matt give sort of like he would tell somebody coming to his church. Well, this is what makes us different from, say, Baptist or Presbyterian or Catholic yep. or, or whatever. So, Matt, if you wouldn't mind, if you just start there, how would you describe what is, you know, what United, not United Methodism, what is Methodism? And then maybe if you want to segue into how we got to United Methodist, Global Methodist, uh, even if you want to talk about Wesleyan and Free Methodist, any of that sure. other stuff. But let me let me let you take over from here and, and introduce Dojo viewers to Methodism. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I'll use the language, I'll, I'll use Methodist and Wesleyan in interchangeably. So if we're talking about the larger tradition, not a particular denominational body, so free Methodist, global Methodist. Um, so you'll hear me refer to the Wesleyan Methodist tradition or the Wesleyan tradition or Methodism. And all that is referring to um, the branch of Christianity that traces itself back to the ministry of John Wesley in 18th century England. So John Wesley was uh, a priest in the Church of England. And he found himself involved in what are now called Wesleyan revivals. Uh, it, it is a lovely thing that the Spirit of God decided to move in England in the early to mid-1700s through the ministry of John Wesley. Uh, George Whitfield was also quite involved in that as well. And um, Wesley began preaching in unconventional places at the time kind of ministry outside the box, very outside the box for the 1700s British world. And the Lord blessed the work and people started meeting Jesus and their lives began to be transformed. And 
that revival spread across the Atlantic Ocean to the American, uh, began at, at the beginning of Wesley's ministry were the American colonies mm -hmm. and became the United States uh, before his death. I would want to say the Wesleyan tradition is firmly Orthodox Christianity. So our desire is not to depart from the historic Christian faith. I would say we might call it classical Wesleyanism. Mm. Um, those of us who really want to keep alive what we think Wesley's theological contribution was, um, we want to affirm our rootedness in historic Christianity, apostolic Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. Then you, someone might say, well, if that's the case, why use the, the language of Wesleyan or Methodism? And the contribution, I think, that the Wesleyan tradition se seeks to offer uh, is an emphasis on the expansive scope of grace to radically and comprehensively reshape human life so that it consistently honors God through and through. Mm. Uh, that emphasis is sometimes called Christian perfection or entire sanctification or just holiness. People trip up over that language sometimes, mm. perfection or entire, things like that. Like Wesley had very nuanced ideas about that. He never affirmed right. anything like sinless perfection. Um, that is a, that's a misperception. Mm. He didn't believe people, that it was impossible for people to sin in this life. That's always, always an issue. But he did believe God's grace is more powerful than than sin, the power of sin in our lives, and that the 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 Lord, the the Spirit of God, could enable us to consistently live in ways uh, that embody love for God and love for neighbor. This would distinguish Wesleyan and, and Methodist theology very sharply from Lutheran theology, for instance, where Luther, you know, part of it is being a sinner at the same time justified and yeah. and living with this always in bondage to sin in one regard, but free because of imputed righteousness rather than Wesley would teach imparted righteousness, like God actually imparting yeah. righteousness. Yeah. Um, I would actually argue that Wesley believed and affirmed imputed righteousness. You, um, at both yeah. and or? Yeah. Yeah. So he. As opposed to imparted. He, in his sermon, mm -hmm. uh, he's got, uh, I should have looked these references up before this, but uh, I've got an essay on it I wrote years ago. He had a couple sermons on the question of imputed righteousness. One of them is called The Lord Our Righteousness, and I forget the name of the other one. One of them was written early in life. One of them was written later in life. In the later one, he quotes a section of Calvin's Institutes on imputation, um, active obedience of active righteousness and obedience of Christ, passive righteousness and obedience of Christ. Did you see the little thumbs up pop up on the screen there? I <laughs> Apparently did. when I when I do this. <laughs> that is hilarious. I don't um, know what's going on there. You I don't know, but I'm not going to edit that out because I love it. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I do. My Zoom. Oh, my Look gosh. It. You get fireworks when you do that. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. <laughs> That's amazing. This is but, not but special I, effects, folks. Yeah, this is yeah. this is uh, Matt has his Zoom set up. Apparently, my Zoom client is pulling out all the stops. I don't because it doesn't work on my end. Yeah, yeah, nothing. Well, is, I don't know what's wrong with yours, but I, I don't have the 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 premium plan. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. this Zoom is brought to you by Wesley Biblical <laughs> Seminary because that's the account I'm affiliated with Wesley Biblical Seminary. I should have mentioned that in my 
in my introduction. <laughs> I work with doctor ministry students, and and so whenever I zoom, I use the Wesley account. Uh, well, that's so maybe that's, we get the premium edition or something. I don't know. I'm but um, you, that adds some excitement to it. <laughs> right, right now the digital natives are making fun of us for not knowing what's happening. On, yeah, on, yeah, uh, these cavemen. Yeah. So <laughs> let me see if I can recover my train of thought before the. the uh, well, let me uh, put you back. You were you are saying that contrary to what is assumed, which is what I yeah, had assumed yeah, yeah. and what I've always yeah. actually taught, heard taught that Wesley believed in God imparts righteous, like gives us yep. the ability to be righteous, whereas other traditions say God just sees yeah. Jesus instead of our sin. Yep. You yep. were saying you don't think that's correct or that's uh, not yeah. what I did. So. so so Wesleyans tend to resist the notion of imputed righteousness, hmm. um, in part because in the earlier of those two sermons, Wesley sort of like he criticizes what what we sometimes call legal fiction, like mm -hmm. justification, like the the justified verdict on a sinner, because uh, the verdict doesn't align with the reality of their life, then it, it's legal fiction, right? Right. But I really think that's an unfair criticism of the doctrine of imputation because. Mm -hmm. Legal, because the concept of legal fiction is, is misleading. In a court of law, right, justification is a legal metaphor, a legal term, a forensic term. In a court of law, there are all sorts of times where um, the verdict or the outcome of the trial is inconsistent with what actually happened, right? So let's say somebody commits murder and the evidence is overwhelming and everyone knows they did it, but the police officers didn't log the evidence the right way and they get off on a technicality, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're acquitted or there's a hung jury, right? And they go out and they're, they're free. And as far as the law is concerned, they're not guilty, right? Because you're guilty until, uh, or not guilt, innocent to proven guilty, mm -hmm. right? So they get off and according to the law, not guilty, but in reality, they did it. Mm -hmm. No one ever calls that verdict legal fiction, right? Because it's only a verdict in relation to the law, right? As law as, as far as the law is concerned, the demonstration of guilt, we didn't rise to that standard. Mm -hmm. And so as far as the law is concerned, it's not legal fiction, even though reality and the verdict don't match up. So when we come over into the theological world, when we want to talk about imputed righteousness, it's inappropriate to call it legal fiction because it's an instance, it's one of those normal courtroom instances where because I'm guilty, because, like, there it goes again, I'm going to have to stop using my hands. <laughs> you want me to try to turn that off? I don't know You're what's going guilty on. of explosive, yeah. fiery yeah, teaching. Clearly so. Um, <laughs> so, so um, this, is, this might be your viral video, man. It could be. That. I don't know. We'll, we'll clip it out. Um, so <laughs> so in, in, a, in a courtroom setting, it's not fiction if the outcome doesn't line up with reality. It just means that the expect, like the stand, the court abided by its own regulations, mm -hmm. right? And in the in the case of imputation and justification by grace through faith, um, if we say that, like the death of Jesus counts in my place, um, his active obedience to the law is the active righteousness of Christ. His suffering on my behalf is his passive obedience and passive righteousness of Christ. Um, Wesley affirms that those two things are imputed to believers. And on that basis, uh, we are pardoned or declared to be in the right. 
And um, he quotes Calvin, he quotes the Institutes and says, I affirm this wholeheartedly. People were misreading my earlier sermon, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I want to give him the benefit of the doubt that he, he the same misreading happened in the 1700s as, as did now. Now, there might be some Wesley scholars out there that want to take me to task on that, and that's fine. Um, but in my reading of it, that, seemed, that seems to be what's going on. So so it's, it's, it's entirely appropriate for someone else's, like Jesus satisfied the demands of the law and attributes the, his satisfaction of that to my case before the divine courtroom. That's imputation. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Um, I think the pushback comes or, or the misrepresentation or misunderstanding or however you want to call it, it comes when either view is, is taken to what its critics would call logical conclusion. And so, yeah. for instance, when you have somebody who is big on righteousness is only imputed. In other words, yeah. you say a sinner's prayer when you're five, once yeah. saved, always saved. You are impute, and so God. They say God doesn't see your sin; He just sees the blood of Jesus. And so you can go on living a life of sin. Yeah. So and Wesley that's where Wesley back. vehemently pushed back, yep. and and I think those are the, sort of the two extreme caricatures yeah. of it. Um, and I mean, I would even say, like, if you read Calvin, he won't let you go there. Right. 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 Um, and so the Reformed tradition, at its best, still wants to affirm holiness. And I can show you quotes from Calvin on holiness that sound a lot like John Wesley. Yeah, and um, I was I didn't and and specifically, I think even among there's maybe and and I'm not a systematic theologian or historical theologian, so I'm speaking out of my depth. But I've I've at least always assumed that even among Calvinists and Lutherans, there's a little bit of a difference in terms of Calvin and Luther when it came yeah. to holiness and and sanctification and things like that. So I, I'm, I'm not trying to pit Wesley against Calvin as much as I would put Wesley against Luther on some things. Um, yeah, that's where right. I think they were. This, but this is these, these are theological minutia to some people who are watching this and going, OK, so dumb this down for me, fellas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, what Sorry is Methodist? Because, you know, I'm tracking with you and, and yeah, yeah. a number of Dojo viewers are. But uh, to keep the net wide, yep. what does this mean practically for how United yep. Methodism became a thing? Instead, yeah, of that's just, right. You know. So, so kind of let's let's back up to Wesley's contrib- Wesley's emphasis. So, Wesley believed that God raised up the people called Methodism Methodist to mm-hmm. uh, recover uh, entire sanctification or an emphasis on holiness. That mm-hmm. the goal of the Christian life isn't conversion and forgiveness. The goal of the Christian life is. Uh, a, a thoroughgoing transformation where the heart is completely filled with love for God and neighbor and that consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Wesley believed that we are able uh, to not sin when mm-hmm. did, uh, that we didn't, that you know, the, the reformed tradition would want to say that every human action in this life is tainted by sin in right. some way. And Wesley would want to say, no, no, the grace of God is powerful enough to overcome that and to um, to enable us to live in ways that consistently and thoroughly honor God. Um, and so so that's our thing. That's what we want to emphasize. Mm-hmm. And that gave rise to Methodism. Now, it got taken in unhelpful directions in a variety of a, a variety of places. Mm-hmm. and you get you get you get folks coming along saying, well, I've been entirely sanctified, and that means it's impossible for me to sin. And they're scoundrels, right? right. 
that's not what we're talking about. That's a bad example. Uh, a classical Wesleyan would disavow and and condemn that sort of, of posture. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is, and we're not talking about, well, you never make a mistake or you know everything. It's not perfect knowledge. It's not, it's not, it's not any of the perfections of God in, in the sense of all knowing or, right. or all powerful. It's not those incommunicable attributes of God. It's the sort of thing where like in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Well, what it, and a lot of us read that and we just kind of skip it because what do you even do with that? I don't, I can't be perfect. Is this, what's this? Hmm. But, but in the Wesleyan tradition, we want to say like, if he gives the command, doesn't he also give the grace? And what does he mean by that command? And, and does, he's not just, you know, spitting in the wind or whatever, right? right? There's, there's something there he wants us to do. What is it? Yeah. If you back up a few verses and look at the context, because context is everything in biblical interpretation, um, you have a God who allows the sun and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Um, he shows kindness to people who are unjust. He's gracious and loving to people who don't deserve it. And then Jesus says, if you love your friends, you haven't really done anything, but if you love your enemies, then you're embodying the character of a God who's to the unjust. Mm. Uh, So be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the idea, what Jesus is calling for there is enemy love or perfect love. Right? Mm. If you can love people without condition who, like, you don't get anything out of it. If you can love them, that's what he's commanding, right? And so, but he uses this language of perfect, like perfection, right? It's Mm. It's this totalizing language. It's a thoroughgoing posture of the heart. So entire sanctification is when everything in my life is yes to Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Right. And, and that's, Wesley that's was Wesleyan emphasis. Yeah. yeah, and he was big on and because he had to clarify this in some of his later addresses and thoughts on perf- after writing a complaint account of Christian perfection and some of his essays dealing with it and, and dealing with criticism. He I remember reading he emphasized over and over perfection and love. Everything mm-hmm. do- is done from a motive of love. Is it possible to truly love somebody? Is it possible to act out of love for God and love for your neighbor? And a big kind of a resounding point was God doesn't, God never calls us to do something without giving us the ability to do it somehow. Yeah. And so for Wesley, the key was because the, the cry was, well, that's, um, Pelagianism. That's, you know, you can be good enough to earn your salvation. And Wesley yep. was always saying, no, 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 no. God, through the Holy Spirit and abiding in the Holy Spirit and walking in the Holy Spirit, we are given the ability to live according to the Spirit so that we don't, yeah. you know, fulfill the desires of the flesh. And it was a lot of it devolved into semantics. And there were I, what the first book, Disciple Dojo, that we ever put out is a little, I mean, never written anything massive, but it was a little book um called cleansed and abiding and it was mm. looked at four views of the concept of christian perfection or entire sanctification and the kind mm-hmm. of the four general camps that all of the theologians basically came down in one of uh, and then i offered one that i think kind of nuances it the way uh what we see in scripture that I think Wesley was the closest to of, mm-hmm. of all of those. Um, I'll put that in the viewer in the show notes for those that are interested in checking that out. But the, the emphasis, and I think to me, the most profound emphasis that Wesleyan theology contributed was, well, Wesley never sought to start a denomination. Um, Methodism was a, a 
a, a derision term. It was it was a nickname that they were given because they did everything methodically and mm-hmm. and you know by the book and they not even by the book just they were methodical in everything they did and and but they took it as a badge of honor. They kind of reclaimed the word and it became described. But it was within the Church of England. It mm-hmm. was it was he wanted the Holy Spirit to renew communities yeah. within the church, Big C Church, and that couldn't survive ultimately after he passed um the wineskins burst so to speak and yeah. got to where we are today and now as a result you know we're we're in the middle of another separation or another dividing yeah. of people called methodist but a key point that i want viewers to know is it's not just wesleyan or methodist a huge chunk of christendom traces their origin in some way back to that same Wesleyan movement. All of the Assemblies of God, charismatic, Mm -hmm. Pentecostal, all of that came out of the fruit of those Wesleyan revivals, especially in America. That's right. So it's a much bigger umbrella. And there's people, you know, Nazarene and others, there's people that they're they're in that Wesleyan general Mm -hmm. community. But specifically... Methodism became so successful from a, a geographical perspective in America. I remember when I was in seminary, one of our pastors, uh, church history professors, he said at one point, fairly recently, I mean, this might have been even into the 1900s or mid 1900s, mm-hmm. there was a Methodist church in every county in America. There was at least one Methodist church in every single county in America, which was mind boggling. Um, yeah. How did how did Methodism spread so much, and and how did it become the second biggest denomination in the country? Yeah, so Wesley sent Methodist leadership to the American colonies, and churches started forming there. It really started a lot as an evangelization movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you had little pockets of people, and then the preachers would travel around to different places and. Um, these are circuit riders on these large circuits and it pressed into the frontier and, um, and the Methodists were relentlessly gospel oriented folks who wanted to see people converted and not just converted to see them transformed. Uh, so their lives would honor the Lord. Um, and it grew over time as, you know, the frontier expanded and frontier settlements became established communities and churches, instead of kind of being a missional movement became established churches uh, things began to shift, and you know, American Christianity was also heavily impacted by um, what's called Protestant liberalism, uh, which isn't like a derogatory term. That's just what the theological movement is called: theological Protestant theological liberalism, which shifted uh, emphasis away from. Well, I don't want to oversimplify it, but but from what you might call an evangelical gospel to a social gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, so the shift was kind of like, well, we may not agree on atonement theories, but at least we can agree we need to feed the poor or something like that. Right. Again, oversimplification, but just to give you an idea. And so that impacted several denominations in the United States, including Methodism. And long story short, you get around to the late 60s, early 70s, 1960s, 1970s. Uh, the United Methodist Church was formed in 1968 through the union of the Evangelical United Brethren and the Methodist Church. So they took United from one denomination and Methodist from the other and got the United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. And in 1972, I think it was 72, if you go back and read, 
the Book of Discipline from that year, the denomination affirms, I think this is the quote, affirms the value of theological pluralism, which is an attempt to, again, say, look, we can disagree on theological claims, but the thing that holds us together is um, this commitment to a certain kind of ministry. Uh, there was an attempt to kind of hold it together with what was called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Uh, but it, but the problem was the denomination, instead of being together by theological commitments, was a, they attempted to hold it together with a theological method, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a, an experiment in big tent Christianity. Like, let's get different people with different views in the same denomination, try to make a go of it. And I think we can say now that it was a failure. The, the experiment was a failure because here we are, you know, less, you know, a generation later. It's splitting along theological lines <laughs> because right. when it comes to Christian theology, theological claims are inherent markers of identity. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to build a connection across significant theological differences. Mm-hmm. They become irreconcilable at, at, at certain points, you know, like it's it's the reason that Christians can work on social projects or advocate for different causes arm in arm with, um, say, Latter-day Saints, you know, our Mormon friends yeah. or with Jehovah's Witness or with uh, conservative Jewish voices or with Muslim yeah. groups, even with like like I. I follow a couple of accounts on Instagram. They're uh, progressive pro-lifers, you know, staunchly pro-life, LGBT pro-life, and all. And and you, we can, we have a common thing that we're trying to see. Uh, but once that thing is addressed, when you look at now, what are the other things you have in common? You have just there's no shared foundation, and so that's you right. Can, you can have a coalition with people who disagree with you, but yeah. you can't have biblical cohesion or biblical unity if you yeah. don't agree on the nature of God, the nature of the Bible. Mm-hmm. It gets messy because some people want to elevate every disagreement to that level. Sure. And so then you get schismatics, you know, yeah. like these, yeah. these people always say there's 40,000 denominations in the world. And I'm sure that number's probably somewhere close to accurate. But a lot of those you might have or be like, like Westboro Baptist Church. I mean, they're mm-hmm. not a church or a Baptist. They just are this family of twisted individuals that rally around this one thing and consider right. everybody else apostate. So there's that on one side. And then there's what United Methodism became, which is it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you pay your apportionments and are in the system and yeah. follow the rules generally, unless you don't agree with the rules, then you don't have to follow those. But it just became this. Depends nothing. on which rule it is. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so it, it just, it fell apart. That's what United Methodism did is it just, yeah. it fell apart. And I, I've told people, and this is a, and I wanted to give Dojo viewers a kind of a peek into the, an inner dialogue between a former United Methodist clergy which is what Matt is, and uh, Ray's died in the wool United Methodist layperson, which is what I am. I think this division, this split, this separation, whatever people want to call it, I think it's decades overdue, at least two decades overdue. It's It's been long in the making. I mean, the reason that it took this long is the, the question of, of uh, property ownership. Mm. You know, folks didn't want to walk away and leave millions of dollars of property on the table. 
Yeah, um, let me. And I know viewers are going to ask about this, so right. let's let's real quick give an overview of why. So why can't let's say you have this, you know, uh, backwoods Methodist church, first backwoods Methodist church, okay, and they've got their property, they bought their property, they raised money, they sold tickets to potlucks and barbecues, they whatever. They have their church and then they want to leave United Methodism, but they're part mm -hmm. of, you know, the, the conference. Methodism is made up of conferences and states are divvied up in different ways. And their conference says, well, you can't leave um, unless you give us, you know, whatever amount of money. Yeah. Why is that even a thing? Why can't they just say, no, we're out and put a new yep. sign on the door? Yeah, but it, the reason is because of what's called the trust clause mm. in the Book of Discipline, which goes all the way back to John Wesley. He included this as a way of sort of safeguarding the doctrines of the people called Methodists, but it has become a weapon uh, mm. to coerce people to stay in the denomination when they want to leave. So basically, local churches don't all own their property outrightly. Mm. In the United Methodist Church, the local body holds the property in trust for the annual conference. And so at the end of the day, the annual conference trustees have final say in how the property is used. The laws vary state to state, and so some churches have challenged that in court and been successful. Others uh, have challenged it in court and failed, mm -hmm. and depending on which state you're in and how the laws are written. Yeah, uh, but in short, yeah, that it's because local churches do not own their property out outright, and that's that is something to me that is. It's fascinating and it's sadly ironic, mm. as you mentioned, and, and for viewers completely unfamiliar, John Wesley didn't want meth like because Methodism was very connectional. It was, you know, they would help each other, they'd raise money for things, they would share things and they were just mm. they were givers. I mean, Wesley died owning almost nothing. You go to his house and there's like a chair and a couple of robes and yeah, you know, I mean died leaving nothing because he gave it all away. And so Methodism, they would raise money for these different things. And they, you know, they'd buy property. They'd have a, a house, a worship put center, whatever building. And what Wesley said was, we don't want somebody to come in and teach unorthodox doctrine, to teach anti-Christian or, or you know, maybe deists or whatever was fashionable at the time. And the Calvinism even. <laughs> yeah, even, even among theological lines. Yeah, Calvinism, yeah. Um, like his good friend, George Whitfield. So <laughs> he, they set it up that, that that the Methodists would own the property uh, rather than the local congregation, so that there would yep. always be accountability, and you couldn't mm -hmm. have these rogue churches splitting off and doing their thing. And yep. when when Matt says it's it, been weaponized, it was primary, it was primarily yeah. theological accountability. Yes, it was to make sure what was being taught was Wesleyan, was you know Methodist. Yep. Orthodox and, Christian. Yeah. And so now, you know, when Matt said it's being weaponized, it's 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 the exact opposite. Now yeah. churches that want to continue teaching what Wesley himself taught, an actual Methodist, the like what the Methodist doctrine officially is in the Book of Discipline, which is the only authoritative doctrine that can speak for the church, the general conference. When you have churches that want to hold to that in a conference that says, well, we are trying to change that, then you have a weird situation where the conference will use Wesley's rule to uphold orthodoxy to keep the property of churches that want to remain orthodox, forcing them to leave, go elsewhere, or pay 
sometimes exorbitant amounts of money just to keep their property and and that that's what's made it nasty i, th- I mean a lot of things have probably made it nasty but to me the yeah, trust that's one of them what, one of them yeah yes yeah, so there's not one it's it's a massive ongoing decades long slow train wreck but that's kind of the rub when people ask well why can't this church just, why can't my church just leave mm-hmm. and that's why because methodism is different than say baptist or uh, Presbyterian or other churches that are the local church is the kind of final authority. Methodism is connectional. And so Methodism has always had local pastors that are elders in the church. And then there are what's called district superintendents that kind of oversee groups of local pastors geographically. And then over them are bishops of particular conferences and they oversee. So it's, it's a kind of a top down. It's similar to like the Catholic church. It's Uh, hierarchical. Yeah. It's hierarchy. So a Methodist church, that's why, if you're wondering, if you're a dojo viewer who asked this question, that's part of what's making the split not easy. And, and it's what, it's why it's different. So for instance, my father's church disaffiliated, he's in the South Georgia conference. So Georgia is divided into two conferences, the state of Georgia. So South Georgia, North Georgia, the South Georgia conference, the leadership there did a phenomenal job. The bishop was gracious. They worked out, Hey, you know, just that you owe this much to the denomination to cover pensions and liability, that kind of stuff. They worked it out. It was amicable. It was fair. And they kind of blessed each other in parted ways. That's not been the case in other conferences in other states where it's been a struggle and it's been yeah. it's been animosity. It, do you know anything about how it is now in South Georgia? I do not know. Still, I haven't that, followed all of my, it. My former annual conference had the same bishop for a while. I assume mm-hmm. we're talking about Bishop Graves. And until May, up through May 7th, there was amicable enough. Like mm-hmm. you pay your exit fee cover the liabilities and you can leave with your property. It's no longer the case in Alabama, West Florida. Mm-hmm. In the last couple of weeks, I've heard of maybe as many as 30 or more churches that have applied to begin the disaffiliation process. Mm-hmm. And the annual conference trustees have sent them a letter saying, we decline to enter into a, we do not intend to enter a disaffiliation agreement with your church. Mm-hmm. And so they're just getting shut down from the start. And it's like, it's no longer amicable. You can't mm. get out if you, you can't even have your vote, let alone try, yeah. you know, anything beyond that. And so, and that is in a, a conference where, and the sad, I mean, this is the sad part. For several years now, Bishop Graves has publicly said repeatedly that his desire is to help every church get where they believe God is calling them to be. Mm. And a lot of churches held off on the process to kind of, you know, give it a little time and those kinds of things because they trusted him. And the conference he oversees has now shut it down. Some of us were expecting that, which is why we tried to get on out as quickly as we could. But you can't get out of Alabama, West Florida now. And it's supposed, you know, a a year ago, it was one of the more conservative annual conferences. Right. But it's, uh, it's very much the needs of the annual conference are outweighing the needs of the local church, what's best for the local church significantly right now. I want to be careful there because like, we're not here just to bash the UMC. My focus is primarily on building the new thing that I'm a part of now Mm -hmm. and contributing to that. But my heart breaks for people that I was in 
connection with just a few months ago who on good faith trusted conference leadership mm-hmm. and now the rug's been pulled out from under them and the conference leadership should repent. And it's not, that's not the only conference where things like that have happened. Unfortunately, yeah. every conference yeah. has kind of been left to do its own thing and figure its own rules out yeah. on how it's going to handle this. And so it varies so much from conference to conference. Right. And, and it highlights, if I can add this, it mm-hmm. highlights why church. So, so here's, you, you want to under, if you want to understand the Methodist split, it's, it, it's large, it's a lot of it has to do with theology, right? There are different views of scripture. There are different views of atonement, different views of how God relates to us um, across, you know, the book of discipline, if you read it, is Orthodox, Trinitarian, historic Christian faith. But the Council of Bishops, the spectrum of different views varies widely. The clergy, the spectrum of different theological commitments varies widely. That's not up for, like, that's not a contested claim. It was trying, the United Methodist Church was trying to be a big tent. So theological issues are one thing. The other problem is the system is dysfunctional and has lost integrity. Mm -hmm. And what's happening right now in the Alabama-West Florida Conference, like for years we haven't trusted it. And the fact that now you can't get out vindicates our unwillingness to trust. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a dysfunctional system that is is trapping churches. General Conference gave churches the right to pursue disaffiliation. And there are annual conferences all over the country that are manipulating that process, that are making it difficult to administer that process. Um, it's, It's underhanded. It lacks integrity. And it's crumbling, it's splintering, it's not splitting, it's literally splintering. Mm. And, and people are not going to stay in a system that they can't trust. Yeah. Um, you know, so let's say you're a member of a church and you apply for a disaffiliation agreement and the conference trustees refuse to give it to you. Like, are you going to be the poster child for United Methodism in your community? Like, that's not how, that's not how you build a coalition no. To fulfill the Great Commission, it's a it's disastrous. It's unhealthy. It's problematic. And well, what bugs me the most is it's not along theological lines. In other words, it's not like you have leadership taking a stand for the integrity right. of this truth that we believe. It's not. It's a it's no. a pragmatic. Well, we are going to use the rules to do this because this is yeah. what's in our interest, and, and and it'll they'll use language of unity, and yep. you know we have to be united, and this and that. But but there is no unity because there's no theological agreement foundation to begin yeah. with. The crucial thing to see is that it's not a conservative progressive debate; it's a conservative progressive institutionalist triangle, right? Yes, and that's what people don't account for is mm-hmm. there's a significant group of people who favor the institu- institutional identity over every over any theological commitment. Yes. And they, they could live in a conservative UMC. They could live in a progressive UMC. But the theology it, doesn't matter. The theology it's doesn't matter. The, brand. the institutional identity is what matters. Yeah. And and so, so you have institutional preservation that is driving this sort of thing, right? It's not progressivism that's driving the trustees in Alabama, West Florida to keep churches in. Right. It's institutional preservation right. is the motivation, right? And they literally say in the letters they're sending, if your church were to leave, 
it would be detrimental or or handicap the ability of our of the United Methodist Church to minute to have a presence in your area. So we're not going to let you go, right? Yeah. So that is institutional preservation by definition. Well, and there are other. I mean, there there are progressive, super progressive Methodist churches that wanted to leave or that have you know been disaffiliated or voted. It's not right. only conservatives that are leaving. Yeah. Because there are progressives who have thought that the general body of United Methodism is not moving fast enough toward what they see as a social justice, civil rights, uh, you know, beautiful vision of inclusivity and all of this stuff. And so so people on both sides have been trying to lead to to jump ship from the sinking ship that people are just rearranging deck chairs yeah. Um, so that's important for viewers to understand, too. The way this gets presented in, especially in popular media, even in some religious reporting media channels, is the Methodist Church has wants to ordain and bless gay marriages and have same-sex uh, marriage po- uh, uh, option for clergy and for members and to be LGB inclusive. And conservatives have said, if you do that, we're leaving. And the yeah. church do- did that. And so now conservatives are leaving. Yeah. That's not actually what happened. In, in, none of the facts of that are actually true. Yeah, the United that. Methodist teaching is still, like you said, the Book of Discipline still says one thing. And those who are wanting to keep that view are the ones who are being That's told, right. well, this is going to change and you know, you're going to have to get used to it. It's It's driven more in the last year or two, I think, by the lack of integrity on the part of the council of bishops. Mm -hmm. So general conference speaks on behalf of the denomination. They produce a book, the book of discipline that is supposed to govern our denominational shared life. It's the job of the council of bishops to ensure that the church lives in accord with the book of discipline. The problem is the vast majority of the council bishops, not all of them, but most of them, and a bishop told me this, have no interest whatsoever in administering the Book of Discipline, particularly when it comes to matters of sexuality, but in other things too. And so, like this is, the, I say this, I've said this before, if, if the United Methodist Church were a publicly traded company, the stock share would tank. Because if you have an executive branch or executive, the executives in your company and the board are in conflict, Nobody's buying that stock because it, it signifies weakness and jeopardizes profits, right? In the United Methodist Church, our executives, the bishops, and our legislators, general conference, are in conflict. And the judicial branch can't sort it out. You know, the last few years, it looks like the, ju- the judicial branch of our denomination is in the pocket of the Council of Bishops. But they can't sort it out either. And so our three kind of oversight governing branches are in fundamental conflict. No, we're not staying on board that. Right, it's, right. It's falling apart. And, you know, if the Lord has entrusted me and other pastors to shepherd his people on the ground in Birmingham or Charlotte or other parts of the country or the world, then that means shepherding them to places where they can flourish and a denomination where the bishops and the general conference are fundamentally in conflict or where the bishops are publicly subverting the general conference, and they are, mm-hmm. like, it's it's pastoral malpractice if I don't shepherd my congregation out of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, account- and I'm accountable to God for that. High-level denominational dysfunction. Dysfunction. That's the word I was going to say. It's a dysfunctional situation, and it, and it's broken down. So... 
if if viewers are watching this and you're just looking in from the outside, uh, this is not overnight. This is not something that's happened in the past five years or 10 years. This has gone back. And people, there have been voices within Methodism. I mean, since I was in college, uh, there have been voices in the Good News or the Confessing Movement or the WCA, uh, these groups that are trying to, that have tried to do for United Methodism what Wesley was trying to do for Anglicanism of his day, which is to get to steer them back to faithful biblical orthodoxy. And when that doesn't work, then you end up with what we have and, and a dysfunctional organization that is just kicking the can down the road and preserving itself. And you've got people on both sides, conservative and progressive, saying, let me get out of here. This is not yeah. let me minister to my community the way I feel God's calling me to. Right. It's well, not a new issue. It goes back decades. The good news is the Lord is doing a new thing and we're la we've launched a new Methodist denomination. That That's what I want to ask you about yeah. is what, so you have United Methodism, which is not, is no longer United, even if that's the name of the brand. Um, thousands of churches have left. And mm. uh, so you have the global Methodist church and the global Methodist church is very new. One, what is it intending to do? Two, why did it, why the global, why I call it global Methodist church instead yeah. of something else? So number one, my hope is that we are building a lean, mean mission machine. That's what I'd like to see happen. I can mm -hmm. flesh that out a little bit for you. The reason it's called the Global Methodist Church is because it's already a global movement. Mm -hmm. um, there are annual conferences and churches around the world that were in the United Methodist Church that have affiliated with the Global Methodist Church. Uh, a number of our brothers and sisters in Africa have expressed an interest and have begun enacting processes to move into the Global Methodist Church. So, and one of the reasons we're holding off a convening conference until sometime next fall is to give more of the global voices an opportunity to transition in to the Global Methodist Church so that our initial conference is a truly, comes with global representation. Mm -hmm. um, we believe that the gospel is for every tribe, nation, and tongue, and that uh, when we gather around the throne of God, we will uh, have representatives from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and we want our denomination to be representative of that. And the reality is we have a lot to learn from Christians in other parts of the world, mm. and we need to be in partnership with them. We need to be learning from them. Uh, we need to be honoring the work that's happening there. Um, I strongly encourage American Christians to go visit churches in other countries uh, just to realize, number one, you live in a bubble and you need to get out of that bubble and see what's going on in the rest of the world. And number two, to realize that the Holy Spirit is moving in beautiful, lovely and surprising ways that you have never even begun to imagine. And you will never encounter the scope of work that the Spirit of God is doing if you don't get outside your your zip code or your your language, you know, the, the country where they speak your language, and see what the Lord is doing in other places. The Global Methodist Church wants to be a church that that embodies those values. And we already are becoming that, and we will continue to be that. And it's tied to a theological identity, That's not right. just a, a, a broad 
spectrum of believe, you know, whatever you want to believe. And there's a quote by Wesley that people love to invoke of, do you know the quote, if your heart be... Yeah, it's, it's from give me the Catholic hand. Spirit sermon. Yeah. yeah. And, if, it, and, and if your heart is as my heart, give me your hand or something like that. And they think it's that been that's misappropriated badly. Exactly. <laughs> if you read it in its context, the, the message Wesley gave, he was not saying it doesn't matter what you believe, I'll work with yeah. you. He was saying, yeah, if right. your heart be as mine, very specifically talking about specific things. And as he's laid out in that whole uh, sermon, uh, then you can work together. And so he could work with people who were generally considered de denominational enemies, yeah. uh, but within the scope of Christian orthodoxy. When, when he says, if your heart is as my heart, he mean, if you affirm historic orthodox Christianity, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what that means. Right. And people who so, cite that right. frequently cite it just to say, yeah, yeah. you don't, it doesn't matter what you think. That. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the global Methodist church aligns itself with the historic Christian faith. We affirm the apostles creed, the Nicene creed. Um, we our articles of religion come from Wesley's 24 articles, which he took the 39 articles from the church of England, uh, which were deeply, you know, Trinitarian and, rooted in the historic Christian faith, uh, took out the stuff that had to do with the king and sent it to America, basically. <laughs> and even though we're a new denomination, we consider ourselves uh, apostolic and rooted in the ancient Christian faith. We want to affirm the trustworthiness of scripture. We want to be people who are committed to scripture ordering our lives. Uh, we are committed to the gospel. We are committed to developing serious, accountable discipleship. We are committed to engaging in mission partnerships domestically and around the world. Um, we are committed to you know, cultivating catechesis. We are committed to doctrine of holiness, and like that's that's who we want to be. We are also creating extra. One of the problems with the United Methodist Church is none of the accountability structures worked so bishops could violate the discipline without recourse and they so could are, and did <laughs> they, yeah they could they did they are they continue mm -hmm. to um so we have bishops who are currently like publicly violating the book of discipline right. and the college of bishops in their area is protecting them from any kind of prosecution that's a continuing issue i um and so in the Global Methodist Church, we're creating, uh, we're going to, I think we'll have far fewer bishops. Uh, we don't have any money, so we can't afford <laughs> to pay as many bishops as the United Methodist Church did. Not um, a bad thing. <laughs> but I had a conversation on my own YouTube channel, Theology Project, uh, about a month ago, maybe, with Bishop Scott Jones, who's one of our two active bishops. We spent an hour just talking about what is it going to look like to have bishops in the Global Methodist Church. And one of the things that came up, he thinks, and I agree with him, that we should have far fewer bishops. So you've got 48, 49 active bishops in the United Methodist Church. We need more than two. We don't need 48 in the Global Methodist Church. So six, seven, eight, perhaps, who are assigned to, to oversee several annual conferences. They won't be resident in any of in, in one of in all the annual conferences. Obviously, if you have several, you can't be residential. Um, but they'll travel around much like Francis Asbury traveled up and down the connection in the early American Methodism. Um, they will be primarily teachers as opposed to office managers, mm. pastors, uh, pastor theologians. It will be, we want it to be a teaching office. We'll have, I think, I think it's going to end up where we have term limits on bishops. So no more bishops for life. Mm. Uh, and there we anticipate having 
uh, a team of clergy and laity who oversee the bishops. And Mm -hmm. and so if a complaint is filed against the bishop, it won't be processed by other bishops. It will be processed by a a team of clergy clergy and laity. I think Mm -hmm. that'll happen. So our accountability processes and structures will be far more robust. And and that's not because we want to just smack people around or discipline people. Um, It's because we want to safeguard the office of bishop and put faithful people there and put them in a position to stay faithful. That's the idea. Well, bishops biblically were to guard doctrine and yeah. to teach and to instruct. Yeah. And you had in United Methodism, bishops became who were the best uh, organizers, who were, who were the That's best, right. you know, office yeah. desk sitters, paper pushers. I mean, it just became it, yeah. it became something where you would have clergy saying, I don't ever want to be a bishop. Why would I, I want yeah. to teach and preach? That's and that's right. it shows you how far a denominational system got from what we see in Scripture. Um, I I think every denomination, including Methodism, of all the different flavors, has strengths and weaknesses. I, mm-hmm. I say this, Disciple Dojo, we're an interdenominational ministry. We're, we're not tied to any one denomination. Um, but I am, or have been up until recently, a United Methodist. And and I can I think I think a healthy denomination, if you're if you have a healthy view of denominations, you can critique yourself. You can critique mm. your own, you can call out your side when they're wrong on something, or you can say, Well, that's actually a good point. I see the weakness of this position, but I still think that this justifies it, or I, I still lean here because XYZ. Those type of denominational discussions, I think, are very good and healthy. I think they can create energetic dialogue. I think that if you talk even across theological lines, you can have good dialogue is if you're not trying to pretend that there's a unity there that's not there. In other words, Mm -hmm. if you can say, you know, we disagree fundamentally on this issue, whatever the issue is. Now let's talk about it honestly. But when you're when you're trying to pretend that you're all of one accord, and you're clearly not, then Mm -hmm you're just, you're not doing anything. You're not upholding anything and, and nothing comes from it. You just end up talking in circles. And there's, I mean, annual conferences I would go to as a lay delegate, it would just be talking in circles over and over and over and and two sides just completely missing each other on yeah. what the actual crux issues were. Mm-hmm. And they weren't LGBT rights. They weren't inclusivity. They weren't even social justice. These were things that all sides had a basic agreement that we want to pursue these things. It's just we have vastly different foundations from which we're trying to pursue them and visions that we think people need to be called to. Mm-hmm. So the, the the phrase that would drive me crazy as a Methodist layperson was every conference when when these fundamental foundational issues were being debated, somebody would stand up and say, look, we just need to get back to making disciples. And I would just think to myself, you can't make disciples if you can't agree on what discipleship is. And if you have fundamental differences on who Jesus is, then you're not going to create disciples of the same person. It it would, it was just the most tone deaf pablum that people would regurgitate every year. And it drove me crazy. So it's awesome to see global Methodists saying from the get go, Okay, 
here's what's going to happen. Here's what it's going to look like. Here is the Jesus that we follow. Mm-hmm. And we all agree on that. We can start to disagree on what's the most effective and strategic way to implement that. And that's what I'm sure global Methodist conferences will have a lot of those yep. type of discussions, but just getting on the same page theologically. And I don't even want to say theologically, cause that implies like you can't have fellowship across the lines between Calvinists and Methodists, which, you know, I don't believe that at all apostolic theologically, like orthodox theologically, Nicene Christianity theologically. Like you have to, there has to be a basis, a shared foundation that you can That's right. And I would say, I mean, a lot of people ask the question like, hey, if we're getting out of the UMC and that was a mess, why would we just jump into a new denomination? Perfect segue. I was about to ask you that. Why why don't churches just get out and just stay independent? Many are choosing to do that. Uh, some temporarily, some for the long term. Uh, yep. Why did you not advocate that choice? Why? What's what's the reason to go yep. global Methodist? So several reasons. Number one, um, I've been doing ministry alongside the same folks for 20 years now, and I don't want to do it by myself. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think like that lack of accountability is not healthy. I want to be in ministry partnerships and ministry relationships uh, with the folks I've been working alongside you know, for, for decades now. And I, I respectfully want to, like, I respect the, the impulse for independence. Uh, I, I want to encourage churches to consider the possibility that they may not have really dealt with the, the potential implications of that. Mm-hmm. So for example, uh, churches are already reaching out. I've, I've had phone calls myself like, Hey, we disaffiliated, but we need a pastor. Any idea where we can get one? <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't joined the Global Methodist Church, we can't help you with that, right? Um, if you're remaining independent, I don't really know where you'll find your next pastor at. Mm-hmm. And if you remain independent and somebody in your church feels called to ministry and wants to go to seminary, well, how are they what what does ordination look like? And how how are they gonna pay for seminary? Because a lot of times the tuition gets paid through denominational re- and annual conference resources. Um, not every you know, the Global Methodist Church doesn't have the full structure and infrastructure that the UMC had in terms of getting school paid for, but there are annual conferences who are ahead of the game on that. Some of us are working on that right now um, in different places. So so the folks who are going to suffer from that are churches that need pastors, and that's, you know, that's happening already. And when somebody gets called into ministry, not having the support network that a denomination provides for education and ordination. Like, what do you do? So those are really important things. The other thing I would say, I will happily acknowledge that we don't have it all figured out in the Global Methodist Church. We are working on it. I've heard two metaphors. We're building the bridge as we walk on it. We're building the plane as we fly it. More than I care to hear. All right. Full honesty there. That's just, that's where we are. So people say, well, why, would, why don't I just wait and see how it works out, and then I'll get involved later? And I would say, because if you get in now, you can contribute to the formation of the thing. Mm. Like, join it. And it's low risk, right? Because unlike the United Methodist Church, we don't have a trust clause. So if you join, and five years pass by, and you've tried to contribute to building a healthy thing, five years go by, four years, you don't like it, you can leave anytime you want to. We don't, we're not holding anything over your head. We are not coercing any churches to remain in the denomination. And we don't have any claim on the, the global Methodist church has no claim on any church's property. Churches own their property outright. And so I would say, join the movement, 
Lend your voice, bring your voice to the table. We would love to hear from you and have you be a part of these conversations. And it's an exciting time. Um, and then if it doesn't go the way you want it to go, it's low risk. You can always leave. You can always leave later. We're not going to coerce you in. We're not going to send you letters telling you you can't leave. Um, that That's unhealthy. It, it lacks integrity. And like, we're not going to go there. So we, so the, 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 Responsibility is on those of us who are already in the Global Methodist Church to provide a compelling vision and mission for the denomination. And the, the churches say, man, that's exciting. I want to be a part of that mm -hmm. uh, because we won't be able to coerce churches into staying. Like right. Institutional preservation for us looks like faithful mission, compelling mission, because there's no mechanism to coerce. Well, what, what about, what would you say your own advice to people who let's say they're in a church and the church is wrestling? Cause there are a lot of churches wrestling. Do we, we're out of the UMC. We're clear of that. We've gotten off the Titanic. It's going down. We're fine with that. Um, and they're deciding and they're discerning and they're, they're giving a good faith weighing of the options uh, because they do look, there are denominations where churches are for the most part independent um, or self you know, self-sustaining in a lot of ways, uh, congregational type approaches. And let's say that they end up going that route and you have somebody who's like, well, I actually am on board with everything about what I see with Global Methodist Church, but my church has voted to not join it. Yeah, Is there a way that they can do anything? Is there a way they can be part of the movement? Uh, <laughs> You know, because there are places yeah. and parts of the country where there will not be, at least for a while, any global Methodist congregations physically that they can get to. That's right. Uh, so what do people in those yeah. situations do? I mean, that's a tough situation because for most people, the allegiance is going to be to their local church, not the denomination. Like if they've disaffiliated with their local church and their local church chooses not to affiliate with a new denomination, like, I don't see a lot of folks just saying, all right, I'm going to leave my local church that I just voted to disaffiliate with and go find a GMC church. Hmm. That that seems unlikely to me. I could I could be wrong about that. Um, but if there are folks who are really love the vision and want to be a part of starting a new a new denomination, then we've got a heavy emphasis on church planning right now. And some folks are trying to create grants and funding sources and um you know, we're looking at what does it look like for churches to plant churches or maybe create additional campuses in places where there's not a huge presence uh, for GMC churches. Mm -hmm. And because there are massive parts of the country where there's no presence, you know, right. so we're going to have to be thinking about planting churches out west and different places right. like that. Yeah. So so reach out to us. Let us know that you're where you are and uh, mm -hmm. what you're interested in doing. I'm, I welcome emails. People can reach out to me, and uh, I'm thinking a lot about what is church planning and multi-site look like right now in terms of putting believing, gathering communities in different places. And I, I, it's exciting to me. I'm having right. I'm having the time of my life right now. <laughs> well, uh, it's got to feel freeing in a lot of ways. It's got to feel like a weight has. I mean, even even people that I know who have disaffiliated pastors, they haven't gone global Methodist yet. Their churches in this dis discernment process, but just not being tied to a denomination where you have to constantly apologize for actions on the part yeah. of your boss, uh, yeah. your, your people who represent you, or you have to tell people, well, well, we're Methodist, but we're not like that, Meth you know, like 
yeah. there's always been that asterisk that you have to put that many of us have had to put when we say we're Methodist. People go, oh, and you're like, yep. wait, 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 what's your experience with Methodist? Okay, no, it's not that. <laughs> like, um, right. So it's got to be great to just be able to just say, yeah, global Methodist, uh, Orthodox, Wesleyan theology and mission mindset, uh, unified vision, at least in terms of our foundational theology. That's, That's right. Well, I'm happy yeah. that you're there for sure. I think it's great. Yeah. And the it, other people. It feels good I know, to be free. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. And the people that I know who are global Methodists, you know, those who have already um, mm. made that shift, it's really cool. It's a lot of people I have a tremendous amount of respect for that I've either worked with, yeah. or known, or been in fellowship with over That's right. since I was in college. So since the late 90s. Yep. And they're now kind of getting this thing off the ground, which I think That's is awesome. right. If you were to ask me, like, why I'm Global Methodist, because I look, you know, our church, uh, I was in a different church, kind of in the disaffiliation process in the Montgomery area, and we went and listened to a free Methodist bishop one night. Uh, but in the end, the Global Methodist Church is being built by people who are my colleagues, my friends, people I have worked alongside of. This is my tribe. These are my people. And I trust them. They are wise and able leaders. They stand on conviction. Many have lost much and walked away from a great deal. Mm -hmm. And I trust them. And that that's why I'm here. Um, yeah. I, I trust Scott Jones. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm here because I trust one reason I'm here is because I trust my bishop and I'm grateful for his leadership and I'm grateful for a bishop who wants to be a theologian, like a healthy theological leader and a, mm -hmm. and a, and a pastor teacher. That's exciting to me. It's good. Yeah. Uh, one other distinction that viewers may be interested in, in the United Methodist church, pastors were appointed on an annual basis. So you could get called up at any time and sent somewhere else and you don't get a say in the process in the global Methodist church. We still have an appointment process, uh, but it's far more collaborative. Uh, churches have the opportunity to talk to pastors before an appointment is decided, have some some, you know, even veto power if they don't they don't like it. Um, and pastors have the opportunity to talk with different churches and do some interviews. So if there are major problems, the bishops will step in. Uh, Bishop Jones and I cover this a lot in the interview I mentioned a few minutes ago. And uh, so if there are problems, the bishop's going to step in. If he has to step in, that means there's some issues. Uh, but we want to focus on long-term pastorates in the Global Methodist Church, none of this like every two years, just move around to different places. We believe that long-term ministry continuity between pastors and churches is will help us build stronger churches and a greater and a stronger movement, a more faithful movement. And so we want to see long-term pastors. We want pastors to go and like go settle in and stay put. And do the work. So I grew up as a preacher's kid in the UMC, and and we were fortunate. We didn't move as often as many of yeah. my friends who are also pastors' kids did. But there's, I, I see the one of the big themes at Disciple Dojo, martial arts theme, is balance. And mm -hmm. I see that there there are two errors you can fall into with either system. And the I I, I want to give the benefit of that. at its best, or at least at its intention. The itinerant pastors where you're moving every few years, the goal, I believe, was to create churches that aren't dependent on a celebrity personality or cult of personality, uh, that the churches could function and the pastors could come in and kind of steer, uh, guide, lead, but the church, would, which may work if you have a healthy, functional church. 
um, yeah, with mature, I mean, solid Christians. That was the, that's the, all things being equal. This is the benefit. I, more yeah. often than not, that didn't happen. Yeah. It, it's probably, I mean, so the itinerary goes back to John Wesley, right? before it was even a denomination, like when it was just that renewal movement. And the itinerancy kind of emerged with Wesley going, all right, what are the needs and who do we have? Right. Um, and there's an area over here. Let's take that person and you'll just ride the circuit and preach in these different areas. Right. And we've given you some training. This is where we want you to go. You go do that for a year, maybe two, and we'll see where we are. Right. And so, and, and so it wasn't like itinerant pastors, it was itinerant traveling preachers, mm. which is a radically different thing than itinerant pastors. Right. Um, and so when you're thinking American frontier, kind of a missionary movement almost, where where pastors are going around, preachers not mm. are going around and giving the sacraments across massive areas, that's a different system. It's a different thing. And I mentioned earlier, when, when Methodism moved from a frontier evangelization movement to kind of a a station church thing where there's a pastor at a church, not a traveling pastor. That was the time when the itineracy should have been modified mm. and it wasn't mm -hmm. right. And so now we have this system that was left over from when we were really a different kind of movement. Yeah. And as the movement developed, our pastor deployment methods didn't develop. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not a Methodist historian. I'm a new Testament guy. But as best I can tell, and I'd, honestly, I'd be interested to have that conversation with some historians and see if that hypothesis kind of matches up with what they've seen. But as best I can tell, the itinerancy was appropriate for 18th, maybe early 19th century Methodism. When the manifestation of gathered believing communities, when that changed, the way we deploy pastors should have changed too. Right. And it did and it's changes hard in a huge yeah, giant sure, organization sure. and it makes sense yep. that it didn't i think the I, the other side of the coin i think the pitfall of long pastorates that to be aware of um, mm -hmm. is when it becomes cult of personality when you become sure. when when a church becomes oh that's pastor so and so's church instead of oh that's fill in the blank name of the church sure, sure. um and when it becomes dynastic when, mm -hmm. when the sun is going to take, you know, like when it's, that's yeah. when it starts to be like, okay, this is yeah. getting a little, mm. yeah. so somewhere in between those two extremes, I think is that's right. different models of healthy churches. And it's, it seems like global Methodism is yeah. leaning, but not, you know, aware of the pitfalls. Yeah. Being yeah. an Episcopal system. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in practicality. Um, yeah. You know, even churches that don't have an itinerant system average four or five, six years for a pastorate. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so will we be able to buck that trend? I don't know. But I think our desire is to create, I mean, not just long-term pastorates, but healthy long-term pastorates. Right. I think it's awesome. Uh, I'm excited. I'll add it. this quickly. Go ahead. And that, that's where the bishops come into play, right? So if mm -hmm. you do have this kind of weird dynastic thing, where all of a sudden somebody's just passing it along to their family member, like the bishops can put a stop to that. Right. There's, there's accountability for that sort of thing. Yeah. And 
And a bishop can veto an appointment if they want to. That's the healthy thing, because there are churches, and, and this is prone to independent churches and mega churches mm-hmm. um, around the country, non-denominational, is you you have a board of people that have you have that you're accountable to, but really it's like five other mega church pastors that you're buddies with that right, you've got to do right. conferences together. And it's like, yeah, is that really accountability? You know, it's yeah. like there has to be something to protect the leaders from themselves. Um, that's right. And so I think that's the role of a bishop. If any, if a bishop yeah. has any role, that's the, yeah, to me, that's right. Right there in their wheel space. Or their that's certainly house. right. And that yeah. came up in my conversation with Bishop Jones too. So there's more, more there for viewers if they want to go check it out. But I think that's exactly right. And, and it's going to be important for us if we want long, long-term healthy pastorates to be thinking about what succession plans look like. Yeah. So that if it has become something of a cult of personality, and it's time for that pastor to retire or whatever. What is a healthy, what's a healthy transfer look like? We're going to need to develop, um, like the Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention has a, a lot of really capable interim pastors. Mm-hmm. We don't have that group of folks. We probably need to be thinking about what it looks like to develop trained interim pastors Hmm. who can go in and know I'm only going to be here for six months, eight months, 12 months. And what does it look like to lead? Right. Being the person who's in between. Like we need, that's a question we need to be thinking about. And we could probably learn a lot from some of the other denominations who already have worked on that. Well, that's what I hope happens with global Methodism is that it, and it sounds like you, and knowing the people I know involved with it, I think that's what's happening, but is being able to look and glean from other denominations and other mm-hmm. traditions, the good things and the strengths that, that exist. I mean, there yep. are strengths in every, unless it's an aberrant cult <laughs> and even them, I mean, their marketing is pretty good. Um, there's <laughs> something to learn from every theological tradition, every denominational tradition. And so I'm mm-hmm. hoping that global Methodist does you know what it sounds like you're doing pulling from the best traditions and while at the same time being clear of this is these are the pitfalls that we're trying yep. to avoid because we've been down that road and it's a dead yep. end and that's what i would say to viewers at the end of the day we got plenty of challenges and things we have to deal with but the right people are on board the leadership is working hard everyone's working overtime and we're all really excited mm-hmm there's a lot to do, but the, the sense of excitement across the world, and I talk to my colleagues in other parts of the country, it's, this is, this is fun. This mm-hmm. is good. Like the Lord is at work. The Lord's, there's a new thing happening and we have the opportunity and not every generation gets the opportunity to do what we're doing and build that lean, mean mission machine that uh, glorifies Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, prioritizes the gospel and loves the Bible loves the mission. Like, I'm there. I love it. Yeah. Well, I think it's awesome. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how things shake out. Um, I, I do hope churches that disaffiliate, um, seriously consider and, and eventually go GMC. Uh, I don't, I won't condemn a church that doesn't. Uh, I think every sure. church at the end of the day has to make a good faith effort to lead how they feel best uh, but my own personal thing is I would love to see churches that left UMC go GMC uh, for yeah. all of the reasons that you've shared. But I, those viewers that watch this discussion, this is one of our rare 
uh, non-biblical textual based discussions. We've <laughs> we've talked about stuff that's not traditional Bible nerdy stuff. However, this was a viewer question, and so I wanted to Good. use the viewer question to um, kind of dig into a topic that that personally I don't feel comfortable or competent to speak on solo by myself. Uh, I consider myself fairly well-educated Methodist layperson, but in terms of the the, the structure being in the system, um, you know, it's just it's my calling and Disciple Dojo's calling clear is clearly not that route. But that's what I was raised with, and my father's still a pastor at a former United Methodist Church. So it, it's an issue that I really do care about. Like I said, this was much more of a kind of Methodist stuff focus. And so for everybody, I'm sure this is not, you know, some of you maybe be like, I didn't even know what Methodists were until this discussion. <laughs> and, and I'm still unclear. That's okay. Yeah. Not every episode's for everybody, but it's important in light of what's going on. And I want viewers, me, James Michael Smith, I want viewers to see when they or viewers to know when they see headlines about what's going on in Methodists in popular culture, that it's not, oh, well, the church just split over gay marriage or LGBT inclusion or that that is that a factor? Yes. But it's because it touches on deeper issues that the mm-hmm. church is fundamentally divided on. And it's just the symptom that that shows the true deep down issue. Um, so if if you take nothing else away from it today, at least I hope you leave with that on your minds. Matt, where if people want to reach you, uh, how can they do so? I'm going to put a link to your video, your interview with yep. Scott Jones. Uh, I'm going to put a link to you've contributed to a book called The New Methodism, which is the next, these, Methodism. the next Methodism. The next Methodism. Sorry. Yeah. I'll put a link to that. I'll change that in my show note right now because I had new. <laughs> um, I'll put a link to that. And my dad read that. He said it was phenomenal. I just haven't had a chance to get to it yet, yeah. but I'll put that in there. What else, what, where can, how can people reach you? And is there anything else out there resource wise yeah. that you really want people to take note of? Yep. Uh, my website is theologyproject.online and that's got links to books. It's got a link to my YouTube channel, which is also called Theology Projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, a couple hundred videos of all kinds of stuff from personal eschatology to, um, Methodist stuff to just sermons, all kinds of stuff there. Folks are looking for it. Uh, there's a contact form on my website. Folks can reach out there if they like to. Twitter, uh, or it's not Twitter anymore, is it? I forgot. <laughs> I still call it Twitter. I'm, I'm Everyone calls it Twitter. Yeah, yeah, no, it will like, be. It will be. It's not going to be able to change. Even articles <laughs> are like X. The yeah. social media platform formerly, formerly known as Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Prince um, when he chose uh, to go by the sign. That's, and yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what I call it. The social yeah. media platform formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> um, at at MP O'Reilly is, yeah. uh, is the handle there. So I'm pretty easy to find on the interwebs and happy to interact with folks and yeah, all that. It's good. So I want to thank Matt for stopping in here in the dojo and talking to us about Methodist stuff. If you are interested in learning more about John Wesley, about Wesleyan theology, the history of Methodism, the first place that I would direct readers to are to the works of John Wesley. This is one of the volumes in the series. You can find these very affordable online. There's a whole set of them. They're up to my right on the shelf above me. The first couple of volumes are his journals. 
and then they come to his sermons. And then there are a couple of volumes where he gives his thoughts on things, or he writes essays, or he takes on a specific subject. Those, to me, are where you find some of the most interesting, from both a historical and a theological perspective, some of the most interesting thoughts that he had. This is volumes 11 and 12 in this one volume. These are his thoughts, addresses, prayers, and letters. This volume is where you'll find his famous A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, probably the most distinct and unique Wesleyan writing in his body of work. He also has one called Thoughts on a Single Life about the whole idea of being a single Christian. Wesley married a little bit later in life than his brother. So that's one that I can definitely relate to in a number of ways. But he would write about a wide number of topics. There's one of his letters to a friend concerning tea. And he just talks about his thoughts on tea, drinking tea, and either why it's important, why it's addictive, whether it's something Christians should partake of. And then he has some that are incredibly profound, like his thoughts upon slavery. Wesley was one of the people who influenced a young politician in England named William Wilberforce, who ended up being the primary driving force of the abolitionist movement in Great Britain. Well, the last letter Wesley wrote on his deathbed was to William Wilberforce saying, keep up the fight against this evil which he was referring to the slave trade. So if you haven't read Wesley's works, there's no substitute for that. That's where I would start. Now, there are also some shorter volumes that seek to kind of condense what's in his works and his sermons and his writings. One of those is Kenneth Collins' book, The Theology of John Wesley, Holy Love and the Shape of Grace. This will give you a good introductory overview to Wesley's theology. And then to situate Wesley within the broader movement of early Methodism, Richard Heitzenrader's book, Wesley and the People Called Methodist. This is sort of a history of the movement and explaining how this whole thing got started. And as a bonus, it actually has pictures. And there are even facsimile reprints of some of Wesley's journals and a map of Aldersgate Street where he had his life-changing conversion. So if you're looking to know more about a tremendously important part of broader Christian church history, this would be a good place to start when looking at the life of John Wesley. And when it comes to the basically splintering of the United Methodist Church, which we are actually seeing happen in slow motion right now, again, there have been voices that have been speaking to this for decades. One that I want to highlight in particular is Thomas Oden's book, Turning Around the Mainline, How Renewal Movements Are Changing the Church. This was published in 2006. And in this, Oden talks about these different movements and these different voices within United Methodism, which Oden lived and died as a United Methodist, and the trajectory that they were trying to turn the ship, trying to get this big vessel turned back toward apostolic orthodox historical Christianity. This is nearly 20 years old, but it talks about a lot of the stuff that Matt and I discussed in this episode. I'll also put links to some of the resources that Matt mentioned in the video description below, so make sure you click on that if you want to follow up. As always, thanks for watching. Stay tuned for future episodes where we look at more questions that viewers submit, as well as our study Bible reviews and our teaching videos here at Disciple Dojo. That's all for now, so as always, Keep training.